Welcome to the Teacher's Podcast, in association with Classroom Secrets, the podcast that's here to help teachers. Whether it's discussing the latest issues in education or sharing top tips for use in the classroom, if you work in education or want to know more about the sector, then this is the podcast for you. Now, please welcome your host, former teacher, life work balance advocate and successful business owner, Claire Riley. Hi everyone and thank you for listening. In this episode, I interviewed Kelly Ashley, an English consultant and author specialising in vocabulary. I felt so privileged to be able to talk to Kelly about her teaching experiences, especially her time in the USA. There was so much content in this interview and you can use that to deepen your teaching of words and Kelly backed those insights with so much research. Honestly, it's such a deep interview with so many things to learn. Let's get to the interview. Thank you so much for joining me on the Teachers Podcast today. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about vocabulary, um, which I know you're really passionate about, um, and it's something that I'm really interested in. And um, when we had the conversation on the phone last week, I was just, I was in awe of just the knowledge that you had. Um, So I'm really looking forward to this interview because you, I mean, even just talking to you just now, so many things that you're going to be able to share. So, thank you. Thank you. I think vocabulary is really central to a lot of people's agendas at the minute, Mm -hmm. wanting to think about how we can develop children's vocabularies and help them to use that vocabulary to improve their reading and writing, speaking Mm -hmm. and listening. So, hopefully, today, listeners will get some great ideas on things to take away in the classroom. Not hopefully, they definitely will. Definitely. Definitely. (laughs) Um, Okay, so one of the things that I always ask everyone to do is uh, give a bit of a backstory. Um, And so, (laughs) just to mention, to everyone listening and watching I did prep you before saying don't be short on this people are very interested because um, you've got a strange accent going on <laughs> and we want to know all about it so tell me everything okay um, <laughs> I, I always say to people you know if you've seen that episode on friends with Monica and Rachel where they have a friend who goes from America to live in the UK yeah. and she comes back and she says oh call me on my mobile and yeah. um, that's a little bit like my accent now. So I'm originally from America, but I've lived here for 15 years. Mm -hmm. Um, My husband was born and raised in Nottinghamshire. I have two children with very broad Yorkshire accents and I'm somewhere in between. Um, And if I talk to you long enough, I'll probably start sounding like you, Claire. So look at (laughs) you. The best accents I have. The best one for radio and podcasting, that's for sure. Absolutely. So so obviously I grew uh, grew up in America. I had I grew up in Florida, in South Florida, mm-hmm. very hot and sunny. Everyone's... So you must be freezing here. I was for about 10 years yes. and I've thawed out now. Um, <laughs> no. But yeah, really hot and sunny, which seems really nice. But when you live there, it's not so much. It's very flat. It's just sunshine, sunshine all the time. You wake up on Christmas Day and it's like 25 degrees. Who uh, wants that? You'll yeah. probably be thinking, well, I do, but no, it gets no, a bit... No, not on Christmas Day, but no. a lot of the other time will be nice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So grew up in Florida, went through um, the schooling system there, went to an amazingly large high school, which has since been condemned, I think. It was a very, very old building. But there were upwards of about 3,000 wow. students who went to this to this school. Um, 
decided to go to university at the University of Central Florida, which is in Orlando, about mm -hmm. half an hour from Disney World, which was amazing. Yeah. Um, especially when you have friends who worked in, they were dancers and yeah, singers, yeah. and they could always get you in to yeah. the Disney World. From time to time, they would get passes, so that was great. So I went to UCF, which is what we called University of Central Florida, and really, really enjoyed my time there. But <clears throat> the American system is really different to the UK system. So am I right in saying that you have to decide quite early on, even when you're in secondary school, kind of your trajectory of where you want to go with your career? Well, you don't have to decide. I guess if you wanted to do a certain thing like dentistry, then you might need certain A-levels in, in um, secondary school, I guess. I think for me, I just went with what I was interested in. Mm. But you do have to choose the actual degree you're going to do, the subjects. Mm. See, in America, it's really different. So the university courses are four-year courses. And your first two years, which you call your freshman year, or freshman and sophomore are your first two years. And in those first two years, you do what's called general education. And I assume it would be equivalent to um, A-levels here. Mm -hmm. um, it's where you start to test out what you might be interested in. And I did a lot of theologies then. Mm. I did a bit of anthropology. I did a bit of sociology. I did a bit of psychology. So can you choose then? You can subjects? pick and choose. So there are certain subjects that you have to take. So there are English requirements um, and requirements for mathematics. Right. But beyond that, it's an opportunity when you get to university to mm. kind of explore yeah. what you might want to do. It's only then at the end of your second year that you have to declare a major. So that's yeah. what they say, you know, you're undeclared. It's, it seems like quite dramatic, your first two years. Yeah, I'm yeah. undeclared. Um, but you have to decide by the end of your second year because your final two years, your junior and senior year, are content specific in what you're majoring in. Um, and it was really only at that time on the wire that I decided I wanted to go into teaching. Right. I had taken some courses on um, child psychology and I thought, well, that's quite interesting. I had dabbled into some teaching when I was younger at the local dance studio and yeah. that was that was quite quite a fun experience. I thought, yeah, we'll give, we'll give teaching a go. Yeah. Um, as soon as I got into it, I was absolutely hooked. So did the two-year course in Florida but then I made a really interesting decision and for any teachers listening, if you've qualified to teach somewhere and then you move, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's really difficult, isn't yeah. it? So you've qualified to teach, you have your connections through your placements and then you uproot and go somewhere else. And that's exactly what I did. So I, th I think though, actually, and obviously um, we're in England, a lot of teachers from England don't have to get the qualifications elsewhere and that seems quite unfair, doesn't it? Mm. Um, so it's, it is well known that actually from other countries, when people come here, they do have to get the qualifications. But often teachers who have learned to teach here don't. Yeah, they, definitely. And I, I'll tell you about that in a minute. It's all about the reciprocity. So how we have reciprocity with different countries and whether I could go from the UK to teach in America. And the answer is, yeah, sure, come on over. We'd love to have you. Yeah, yeah. Or if you want to come from the US to the UK to teach, you have to jump through many, many hoops. Yeah, so there's, yeah. there's a lot more um, in terms of specific requirements mm -hmm. coming from out of country. So, so I trained to teach and then I moved to North Carolina because I wanted to get some Christmas uh, weather. Right, okay, okay. <laughs> I wanted to see some seasons. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> and, I, and I moved there. And when I got there, I did something really bizarre. I just 
drove around to all the local primary schools with my with my resume, with my CV, and I just went into the office and said, are you looking for any teachers? This was literally two weeks before yeah, yeah. school started. And I, I happened to land in in a brilliant school um, called Bailiwick Elementary in, in Raleigh. And the head teacher there was a lady called Terry Allen. And I just clicked with her automatically. I dropped my resume off, had a bit of a chat with her. And she says, I'll tell you what, can you come back in two hours for an interview? Wow. And I did. And it turned out that someone that they had appointed... Um, had decided to go for another job so they were yeah. panicking a bit and it just all the stars aligned yeah. um, I worked at, at Bailiwick Elementary for several years um, in it was a, a third grade class which is the equivalent to year two um, mm -hmm. at the time really enjoyed that very quickly ended up becoming what we call grade level grade level chairperson so we had five it's a five form entry school so we had five teachers teaching third grade mm -hmm. and I was wow. kind of the, yeah there was it's a huge school um is that normal then for um schools of that age to have that many classes in that area of Raleigh it's more common to have fewer schools but larger schools right okay then you wouldn't have I mean I live in rural North Yorkshire and I think at last count, there were 340-something primary schools, yeah. um, some of which only have 20 pupils. Yeah, so yeah. You, wouldn't, you wouldn't really see that in uh, Raleigh's quite a metropolitan, you know, big right, city yeah. area yeah. Um, in the country. So so ended up kind of having those leadership opportunities, um, moving up and doing different opportunities for leadership within the school. But then my husband soon to be husband arrived All right, <laughs> so okay. he was teaching over here at the time so right. he was a teacher in North Yorkshire he was teaching over in Scarborough and it was a time when the government were offering grants for teachers they'd been in, if they'd been in teaching for three years or three or four years they were given a grant of a couple of thousand pounds to develop themselves to encourage people to stay into teaching, which I think is actually quite a good idea. Yeah, yeah. So my husband thought, hey, I'm going to America. Yeah. <laughs> what year was this? Oh, this was in 2003, four. Yeah, because I qualified, I think, 2005. <clears throat> and I remember there being something like that. And I did consider it, but I think you had to go for too long. And I thought, oh, no. Yeah, so he, so he did that. And he made a connection with the teacher in his school, with the teacher in my school. And mm. um, we always joke, it was love at first sight in the copy room. Um, <laughs> and that was that was that so I I stopped my job there which was actually a really sad time because I loved working yeah. at Bailiwick I loved the team and the children um, it was a great school to work with you felt really supported um, and I moved over to the UK now going back to what we were talking about with reciprocity I had a massive shock yeah. so I moved over here I had been teaching I think it was six years at the time. I was halfway through my first master's degree, which mm. was a specialism in uh, literacy reading. And I came here and they told me, oh, you have to requalify. Yeah. So I had to start. You're right. so experienced at so, that point. So I was, I was frustrated, but I thought, well, you know, he's worth it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I did it. Um, and I requalified through something called the, the graduate teacher program, which people might be familiar with. Yeah. And it was something specific called the OTTP, which is the overseas trained teacher program. Yeah. So essentially it was a funny program because you had to get a job in a school mm. and once you had a job then you could apply to be yeah. on the course so yeah. 
the the school really had to take a risk um, on you. And again, luckily, I uh, the head that I had at the time, she she took a risk on me. Not you know, as an unqualified teacher, also I was quite cheap. <laughs> yeah, well, this is what I was going to ask you actually. <laughs> I was quite cheap for the first year, um, and I ended up teaching, and that was a mixed year four five and six class so mm, wow. back to what we were saying from a massive five form entry school mm. this school only had about 60 children yeah. in the entire school so it was massive culture shock educational culture shock personal culture shock everything um but it was it was a really good time so i worked in that school for several years and then it was about that time that the the primary framework was coming in mm -hmm. and North Yorkshire Advisory Service were looking for teachers to join them to kind of deliver primary framework training yeah, uh, yeah. to support to support that development. So I was seconded to support the North Yorkshire English team mm -hmm. and that eventually led to a position coming open. I applied um, and then I was working as a for North Yorkshire as a national strategies mm -hmm. consultant, which yeah. was really interesting. Um, I, I was listening to your podcast with Jane Constantine. Yeah, I was just uh, thinking of her as you yeah. said that, yeah. And it was a really interesting time because you would Did go, you know her? Um, I didn't know. Well, I might have done, but I think she was in a slightly different area because we yeah, were in yeah. regional groups. Um, so we got to know people within your region. We had meetings every month and you went and they said, right, here's the package. This is what you need to deliver. Um, luckily, we had a, a great, great English team in North Yorkshire. We all yeah, worked yeah. together really collaboratively and we were able to kind of create something that still kind of fit the bill, mm -hmm. but that also fit with what we thought was the, the right thing yeah, to yeah, do. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then my children arrived <laughs> yeah as they do yes they just arrived they and just arrived um, take over everything yeah one <laughs> after another in very quick succession and at the time as you know local authorities um there was a lot of a lot happening in terms of redundancy and there's mm -hmm. still a lot happening in terms of the resh reshuffling of funds and so i took the decision to to go mm -hmm. um and i said you know i think there's a lot of people here who really want to continue to do this and I thought my heart's just not really in it anymore and mm -hmm. I'd rather go and have time with my boys so I did that mm -hmm. um, and then after after doing that people started contacting me saying Kelly um, I know you're not working anymore but could you just come and deliver some phonics Kelly mm -hmm. Kelly could you just come and talk to us about writing Kelly could you come so people that yeah. kind of encouraged me and then that was when I set up my business which is what I do now which is independent consultancy with the specialism in primary English. Wow, thank you. And that's the journey. <laughs> yeah, so I've got so many questions from that, which I'm just going to ask you now. So you said that you you came over here and then you had a four, five, six class. Mm -hmm. How on earth did you find the curriculum that first year? Um, because you've been teaching, obviously, your two-age children and then you're in a completely different country, curriculum, age groups. Yeah, I think it was really interesting because at, at, you know, at the heart of it, whether you have a single age class or a mixed age class, you need to be catering for the needs of all of your learners. Mm. I think the biggest challenge for me was getting to grips with the change in the curriculum and the mm. curriculum expectations. So whilst I was in, in America, I was very familiar with what children needed to know and when yeah. they needed to know it. So that, that, that was the challenge more, getting to grips mm. with 
kind of the expectations in what they should be achieving when. Um, but the basic principles of understanding what did, where, what are children doing and what do they need to do next, yeah. it was still applicable even though yeah, I had a mixed age same. class. And it was thinking about, you know, how can we ensure that that offer really challenges children in the most appropriate way. Mm. So um, obviously you taught year two age children um, when you're in America from what you know of the year two curriculum now you know how do they compare about what they need to know yeah I think the approach is to teaching I mean we're going back quite quite a while now from when I was teaching in America but the approaches to teaching back then, especially in terms of the teaching of literacy, were a lot more holistic. So you saw lots of things like readers' workshop and writers' workshop, which really interestingly are starting to come back into the fore now. Mm -hmm. So we would have um, these workshop style sessions, which is very similar to what we do now. Teacher would model a piece of text, mm -hmm. um, and then children would have an opportunity to, to craft a text of mm -hmm. their own. But the difference was, is that those writer's workshop sessions were very much focused on children writing about personal interests. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have that specific text-focused approach that we tend to have now within the curriculum, where yeah. we're reading a text, we're exploring the text as a reader, thinking again of the text as a writer and how we can use language or grammatical structures or or the tone or the message of the author to put across a particular message so so it was very it was very different in that sense but also it's quite interesting because you can see now things coming in to the UK curriculum things like writers workshop which are often talked about um, with quite a lot of fervor um, on places like Twitter those were things that were happening back yeah. then um, in, in the US. Yeah. Also, we're just copying, basically. No, no. <laughs> it's, it, at the end of the day, education... It comes around the, a bit, it, yeah. it just goes. It swings in roundabouts. And, you know, there are some core, there are some core principles. And we find this great way in education mm. of like, renaming the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and pretending <laughs> it's something new so that new teachers can't find it. <laughs> But it's really good because it, it shows you that actually, as a teacher, there are some really core principles that work really well. Yeah. I mean, the writer's workshop I was talking about um, was from Irene Fountas and Gaysu Pinnell, who wrote the original uh, guided reading text, Word Matters. So this is kind of in the mid-90s. Mm. Really, really influential in my, in my teacher training, mm. kind of learning and understanding how, how reading and writing work and how we interact mm. with text. But a lot of the new pieces of research, obviously they still reference that, um, yeah. previous, but as we, as we grow and develop, it's about synthesizing that information into something slightly more useful based yeah. on the current climate. Yeah, yeah, something more modern. Um, how did you cope with the spelling changes? It just occurred to me then, so you're teaching <laughs> <laughs> writing and vocabulary. And <laughs> I mean, I don't know whether you come at, come at it from the same point of view as uh, people in the UK, but you know, our way is the right way. Um, yes. So how did you cope with that? <laughs> yeah, no, that's really interesting because I find myself, um, I had to almost relearn how to spell certain things like the at the end of word well first of all we don't say z we say z yeah so the yeah. letter z not the letter z so if we have um the word summarize yeah, you know yeah. that would oh, be yeah. with an i z e yeah. in american but it's i s e yeah. or color 
with yeah. a U in there. Um, and it's, I think it was just kind of raising an awareness of what some of the major changes are. Yeah. Um, I still get it wrong. There are still times in training sessions, but I just put it down and I say, oh, well, it's fine. It's just the American way. And it's quite a nice, quite a nice get out clause. You yeah, know? yeah, Actually, no, yeah, that's yeah. the way we spell it there. And, and most people don't check to see if that's right or not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's fine. <laughs> oh, I just, I'm just thinking, oh, the pressure you must feel. <laughs> yeah, especially being a, you know, a literacy uh, consultant, consultant, kind yeah, of working yeah. in schools, talking to teachers about that. You want to make sure you get your spelling spot on, definitely. <laughs> but on the flip side, I also think, so obviously you do have that to contend with. But I think, I think it's great that you're a literacy consultant because you you bring something different. You bring in experience from somewhere else, you know, you, you've got a wealth of experience instead of, you know, working in one school for a number of years, you've got an array. And I think that is attractive. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because even though it's been quite a while since I've I've taught in the US, I do travel back quite regularly. I was just there uh, back in November uh, talking to some schools about some yeah. of the principles um, in, in the new book that I've written, which we'll talk about later. But it was really quite interesting thinking about still seeing practice in the schools yeah. and how they're developing things and how they are really, really quite similar yeah. to a lot of the things that we're developing here. Yeah. You know, the heightened focus on this kind of text at the centre of the curriculum, mm-hmm. developing knowledge in subjects, knowledge to deepen understanding, yeah. um, reading and writing as a vehicle or a mode for communication mm. to deepen knowledge and understanding. So you could theoretically walk into a classroom in the US and Mm. still feel quite at home even though the curriculum is still quite different to how we've shaped the curriculum in the UK yeah oh it's amazing so um I'm really enjoying this whole (laughs) let's compare them um so in another um sense of comparison then um, how does the pay compare? Because I'm sure there are, there are teachers listening now thinking, hang on a minute, I could go work <laughs> in America and not have to you know, do a qualification like you had to. Yeah. How does the pay compare? Well, there is a bit of a caveat. Okay. <laughs> so in the UK, as teachers, we get paid for 12 months of the year. Oh, I think and, I've heard this. But yeah. Go on. So you get paid for 12 months of the year, understanding that there's only school time for 39 weeks of those 52 weeks and mm-hmm. the rest of the time you have as as holiday pay. Yeah. Well, well, in, you are actually paid for the 39 weeks but spread over. Right. Okay. Well, that's was in terms of the US, you're only paid for 10 months. So right. you so the, the summer tour, the summer holidays is actually roughly 2 months and you're not paid Um, across that time so whilst the pay looks really quite attractive there is that to take into consideration that that's pay for 10 months of the year and Mm then it's quite deceiving because then you have to spread you have to spread that out you have to make sure that you save or work somewhere else but also it's the cost of living so the cost of living obviously it varies if you're if you're going to work in new york you can forget it because you're going to really struggle Mm. uh, with the cost of living but if you live somewhere in rural north carolina like i did um the cost of living is is a lot more manageable places Mm -hmm. like florida are a lot more expensive for obvious reasons um, because of the tourist um, industry um so you do get a really different experience based on the state that you're going to. Um, At the time when I was teaching over there, we didn't have 
they have this new curriculum called Common Core Curriculum, yeah. which I'm not sure if you're familiar with yeah, that. Yeah, I have read a bit about it. And before that time, each state had their own curriculum. That's similar to Australia, I think. Right. Um, they do seem to have um, different areas have their own curriculum. So each, so each state would have their own curriculum. You would decide what you were teaching, when you were teaching it, how the knowledge and skills progressed over time. Um, but if you had a child who came in to your school from another state, yeah. there were massive gaps in knowledge because yeah. the curriculum that they had, although there would be some, some common, common areas, mm. there were also huge gaps, especially in um, foundation subjects like science, we call it social studies, history yeah. and geography combined, basically. So... So that was actually quite interesting as well. So it's it's contending with not only what I want to go and teach there. It might look really attractive, but you would want to think mm. about what's the cost of living. Yeah. And actually, perhaps now with getting to the grips of the curriculum, that might be a little bit easier if they have the Common Core. Although if you asked American teachers, they'd probably say no, because not a lot of people are keen on, on the Common Core. I have core. read that as well. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I remember when he first came out on social media and I was following that a lot. I was like, oh, they don't seem to be happy with this. It's funny because it, a, a lot of it comes out around the teaching of mathematics, which is teaching kind of more of a conceptual understanding mm -hmm. before just teaching the methods, mm -hmm. which is very much not... Um, in no way a math specialist but is very much in line with the way that we teach here kind of that foundational yeah. understanding and it was mostly a, a real big uproar with the parents because the parents right. were saying well I wasn't taught this way and, oh, and, right. and yeah, then there, was, yeah. there were a lot of classes and learning that was needed by parents yeah. to be able to support their children yeah. effectively not really understanding the homework and what was happening I don't know if that's died down I don't have any kind of gauge not living in that yeah, uh, yeah. that situation but yeah but hey, you know, if, if you if you move over there, you might get a bit less rain. That might. <laughs> yes, you know, it could be sunshine all year round. <laughs> it could be, depending on where you live. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, okay. So how did um, so obviously you did the GTP here, which is kind of on the job anyway, isn't it? But how did the training compare? Or we yeah. kind of just left to it. Um, the GTP part. Um, so with the GTP, um, I basically had the, the teacher standards that I had to meet by keeping a portfolio of evidence so mm -hmm. it's just a range of evidence as you would do really similarly on a on a teacher training program yeah um and then i had an assessor come in mm -hmm. across a day or two days and the assessor watched me teach and asked me questions talked to the head teacher talked to the children so from signing up to the program to completion it only took me about six months Right, okay. probably could have gone a bit quicker but that was kind of the minimum amount of time that they they gave you to yeah. collect all of your evidence yeah and also I mean I suppose you came at it from a very different point of view of a lot of people I know a lot of people um, who do GTP have done t um, been a teaching assistant mm. but that's very different from having six years teaching experience before you even arrive yeah it was it was a bit easier in that sense because you understood kind of core pedagogical principles you understood how classrooms worked and yeah. how to how to guide pupils and yeah. how to address their needs what I didn't know was the curriculum content so yeah. a lot of my time was focused getting to grips with understanding what the curriculum should be providing yeah I'm aware now that <laughs> this episode is not going to be called vocabulary it's going to be <laughs> the differences between hey. teaching America and teaching the UK I was just like I best cut out just a few more questions about what is it like in America <laughs> 
so a lot of people of, ask me about the American side. It's absolutely yeah, fine. Yeah, honestly, it's so, <laughs> so interesting to everyone. Um, so I, I, um, I do actually put out to the guys. You know, this is, I'm interviewing Kelly. You know, what would you like to ask her? Um, she knows all about vocabulary. So um, Hannah. Um, who works with us, she says, do you have any top tips for improving the vocabulary of reluctant readers? Yeah, um, I think, first of all, with reluctant readers, it's finding a way in to help to encourage them to develop a love of reading. Mm. So one of the ways you can do that is you can spot what their interests are. So I'll give you an example of my my youngest child. He, he absolutely adores cricket and football so one of the things that we started doing with him was getting him magazines like match attack Mm -hmm. Um, and he absolutely loves looking through match attack talking about the text Mm -hmm. Um, and then we would share lots of stories together so Mm -hmm. sharing stories to try and heighten that interest I think the more that you can do to help children to connect what they're reading to their personal interests and Mm -hmm. their personal understanding it is all about that motivation and engagement so my first question would be is what what reading materials are they are they having access to Mm. Um, secondly it would be about giving them a choice so if you're lucky enough to have have a library nearby which unfortunately we're we're seeing you know fewer and fewer libraries active we're lucky where I live there's a, a small library in the town um, and the boys and I, we go every few weeks and let, I let them, you know, make their own selections. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we'll have a talk about, oh, what might you be interested in? And what did you read last time? Oh, if you've read this book, it might be, this might be a book that you're interested in. Yeah, yeah. So giving them the choice. But then moving on, it also as an adult means that you need to have a good knowledge and a good understanding of what what's out there yeah yeah so who are the new authors who are the authors that have been out there who writes in it oh I really like this rhyming text I like this Julia Donaldson book can you think of any other books that are written in that way or I might like something really factual and informative Mm. what are the different types of text I might like something with really interesting illustrations or I might live on a farm Mm. and I might want to read something about living on a farm so it's having good knowledge either yourself as the adult or access to you know our brilliant librarians or even having a local independent bookshop somewhere nearby that has many many knowledgeable people where yeah. you can go and have that open conversation ask, you know which are good and we were saying just before um we started the official interview that that can be difficult um because before i had children i used to tutor and used to pick up um, really cheap books from like home bargains or something and boy am I regretting that now um, <laughs> because oh mummy can we read this book oh they're so boring um, and at three she might not realise um, but we definitely had a call before Christmas and I bought better books and I think now as a parent I'm looking for the more interesting books and and if you don't know you don't know it's really difficult you kind of have to keep that conversation and dialogue open with other teachers don't you really to mm. to find out which are the good books I think it's really difficult because as you say you go into any of the major retailers and you look at the books that are up front and center those are often the books that the children if they bought a present for birthday or Christmas yeah. they'll get those books Sometimes those books are are of high quality Mm. and sometimes they aren't. So I think it's about going and exploring, 
perhaps finding an author, if you read a book and you really, really enjoy that author, read a couple of more books by that same author and help the child to see the connections that we can make. So one of the books, um, so back to my youngest, who's mad about cricket, mad about football. One of the books that he absolutely... He's six. So when he was about four, this was, you know, we were starting to get these these match attacks, uh, Mm -hmm. magazines, etc. But we... I managed to introduce him to Dinosaur Dig by mm-hmm. Penny Dale, who's brilliant. She's really active on Twitter, so do say hello to her. Um, and she writes this brilliant combination of books that have these dinosaur characters along with something technical. So Dinosaur Dig. Write this down, but go on. <laughs> so Penny Dale. So Dinosaur Dig is written about these dinosaurs who are building something and you don't know until the very end of the story what it is that they're building don't tell me (laughs) and i won't tell you but it's written in a very patterned sequence so it's one dinosaur digging a hole a very big hole dig 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 two dinosaurs shoveling shoveling gravel and earth can you tell i've read it about 500 times yes i'm just like wow this is like i could do this with a gruffalo (laughs) absolutely (laughs) but he was absolutely hooked on that. So we read the story, we reread it. He even got into the intricacies of the different characters. So for instance, he had decided that the iguanodon in the story, because he knows all the names of the, the, the specific dinosaurs. Yeah. So the iguanodon was quite lazy. So he tracked the iguanodon through and then we went back and reread, but looked at each of the different dinosaurs to see how much they had contributed to this thing. I won't spoil the ending okay, for you. Okay, all right. Um, but she's also written things like um, Dinosaur Zoom, Dinosaur Rescue, Dinosaur Farm, Dinosaur Rocket, Dinosaur she loves dinosaurs, But they're all the same characters. Yeah, yeah. So it's something like that. If you, if you hook on to an author or a style that mm. the child's really into, it's really exploiting that and thinking, right, is there something that we can do here? To, to engage the talk, to engage the love of language, to get them to explore that technical vocabulary like dinosaur names or I think in Dinosaur Dig, one of the vehicles is called a telehandler. So and mm. Pennydale talks about what that is in the back of the book with some really useful illustrations. But that, that will just open up their interest even more because it is about finding books that match their interest, but also finding books that broaden their mm. interest as well. Mm. Oh, thank you. Um, okay, so Kath um, says, have you got any tips for closing the word gap for those children who um, are not exposed to a wealth of language before the age of three? Talk, 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 talk. <laughs> That's really, um, it is about how much we talk and interact um, with mm. those with those young children. So I think if you're, if you're thinking about children coming into your setting at the age of three, what is the likely what are the likely opportunities that they've had to hear really high quality language? Have they heard stories being read aloud? Do they know, you know, five little speckled frogs sat on a speckled log? Do they know Humpty Dumpty? What are the rhymes? What's the knowledge? What's the word knowledge? What's the kind of text knowledge that they have already? From the research, we know that there is quite a significant gap in children at the age of three. So there was quite a, a well-known study by Hart and Risley that was conducted in the, the mid to late 90s in New York. And they actually worked with 40 families from cross section of society. So some families who were um, from very disadvantaged backgrounds um, at the time classified as being on welfare and some children from non-disadvantaged backgrounds. 
and it was a longitudinal study, so a study over a long period of time, from the child, from those children in those 40 families, from the age of six months mm. to the age of three years, they actually went and sat in their houses for an hour every week wow. and just listened to the number of words that that child was being exposed to. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if you've heard of the kind of statistic about this 30 million word gap. Yeah, That's where it comes from. It comes from the Hart and Risley study. And what they found was at the time was that children from um, disadvantaged backgrounds were hearing 30 million fewer words just in, in that time from six months to yeah, three yeah. years than the children from non-disadvantaged backgrounds. So number one is just the amount of talk that, yeah. that we use. The second thing to think about, which Hart and Risley also looked in their study, was how we extend the talk. So we would call that how we make the talk dialogic. So dialogic as in dialogue talking. So if I was to say to you, um, you know, what did you have for breakfast today? Mm -hmm. And then you would say... I had uh, strawberries, blueberries, yogurt and uh, cashew nuts. Oh, that's very healthy. <laughs> so in a non-dialogic conversation... Every, every day starts off well. <laughs> yeah, that's good. that's good. It's good to have goals. It's good to have goals. Yeah. I'm very impressed. Um, but if our conversation was to end there... That's just what we call a single exchange conversation. So it isn't a dialogue. Ball asked, dropping. Uh, yeah, so I've just asked you a question and you've responded. If we wanted to make that dialogic, you might say, oh, blueberries, I really like blue. What's your favourite part of your breakfast meal? So we might ask a follow-up question mm. or we might ask them to clarify or we might link them into a personal experience. Mm. And it's that dialogic back and forth conversation that really will help children to find themselves within language but also to to better articulate themselves and it's not about getting children to re so we, we would say recasting so they said what did you have for breakfast cereal say oh you had cereal for breakfast not saying and then usually they will say that automatically won't they so repeating that word in a sentence is called recasting, helping mm -hmm. them to get the structure of the language. Or you might re uh, ask them a question, what kind of cereal did you have? What did it taste like? Was it crunchy? Was it crispy? Was it soggy? Was there too much milk? Did you have too many blueberries? Did you have enough blueberry in each spoonful? So giving them that additional information mm -hmm. is helping them to build um, what's called a schema. So in our long-term memory, we have schemas of, of information. So I have a bunch of information in my head right now about cereal. Mm -hmm. And I think about, okay, I've got crunchy nut cornflakes and I've got Weetabix. Yeah. But I've also got in my schema things like Kix, which was a cereal that I had when I was younger, yes, or Lucky yes. Charms. Yeah, and yeah. you might think about the different toppings. So you know the Weetabix commercial where they challenge you every day to eat to it have a differently. Different one. Yeah. You might have that in your schema. So by talking to children and getting that dialogic nature going mm. what we're doing is we're getting them to broaden and expand their schema mm. and that's going to boost their language and vocabulary so so back to what i said just talk 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 as yeah. much as you can i find it interesting because obviously the things you're saying i'm thinking oh yeah i do i do that um with my three-year-old and i suppose sometimes it comes naturally doesn't it and i guess it's it's how you translate that because it's easy to do it with one child um and my one-year-old i think I imagine that when she comes around to, to talking more clearly, she will have an even better vocabulary than my 
eldest because she hears so much more talking mm. because she hears the three-year-old and us talking talking more as well. Um, but it's like, how do you um, translate that to the classroom when you're talking to 30 children? Mm. I think it's, at the end of the day, as teachers, we need to find ways to uncover what the children are thinking. Mm -hmm. So we would model that by articulating, so thinking aloud, or if we're modeling writing or we're modeling reading, we might stop and say, hmm, that word's a bit peculiar. Or in my case, I'm not quite sure how to spell that word. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it has a U in it, I think, somewhere. Um, but we would... I am perplexed yeah, by this. I am perplexed by the, the how, we, how we spell this word. So we, we stop, and we often do this quite naturally as teachers. You stop mm. and you articulate, even if you feel a bit silly doing it at the time. What you're doing for the children is you're helping them to have a window into, into your mind. You're having a window into how you're thinking, yeah. how you're processing that schema, mm. basically. Yeah. So, so in the classroom, we need to not only do that modeling, but provide opportunities to make that explicitly clear that that's what we're doing for children. So when I'm talking, I'm talking to you as a writer and you're getting an inside look of what I think about as a writer, yeah. as I'm writing, or as a reader when I'm reading. Yeah. Now it's over to you. So it's thinking about how do we provide opportunities for children to talk and articulate their thinking. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the big things with especially vocabulary development is it's not about teaching children new words and children memorizing new words because it was the teacher's definition. Mm. It's getting them to construct an understanding, linking it to something that's already in their mind. Yeah. But in order to do that, we need to help them to unlock what's already in there by articulating. So lots of talk, lots of you know talking to partners, working groups, collaborative discussion, but guided and supported by the teacher in an effective way. Yeah, thank you. Um, okay, so I've got another question here. I think these are all from Kath, to be honest. She was on it. So, <laughs> Kath's still teaching in school, so she's probably like, I want to know all the answers. Um, okay, so at what age do you think the correct vocabulary should be used? And so the example she's given here is um, the word vertices. So she's heard vertices be referred to as points mm -hmm. or corners in reception in year one, but then vertices in year two. You know, Do you mm -hmm. think we should use it from the beginning or...? I'm, um, well, first of all, in thinking about the language that we want to use with children, we need to think about how we would classify that language. So we have a really useful classification system that's been um, devised by Isabel Beck and her team. She might have heard of the book Bringing Words to Life, which is on its, I believe it's second edition now. Mm -hmm. It was a text I used when I was at university to learn about vocabulary development in the first instance they call it their robust vocabulary instruction. So it's a culmination of their research on how to make the teaching of vocabulary really robust. And Beck and her team have created this really useful tiered framework to classify words. So basically at the bottom of the tier, sorry, I'm just gesticulating here because we've, that, we, that, <laughs> I have to use my hands on the podcast, but we, you can always watch a YouTube video. <laughs> so at tier one, Tier one is at the bottom of this model and tier one are the words like your little girl, words that she uses um, at, back to the breakfast scenario, things like milk, bowl, spoon, oh. um, cereal, cornflakes. These are words that children learn through spoken interaction. Mm -hmm. And those they are at the bottom of this, this pyramid model because they form the foundation mm -hmm. of everything else that we learn about. So we need those kind of basic 
conversational words mm -hmm. but we get to a point when actually we need to learn more sophisticated ways of saying things mm -hmm. so instead of oh I walked down the street I might meander I might roam I might gallop I might saunter yeah. I might you know move in any myriad of ways mm -hmm. so that's what we call tier two word mm -hmm. so all of those more descriptive ways usually that are linked to something in tier one yeah so we can think of Tier two is like the Rolls-Royce model yeah. of describing something quite simple, but in a more specific and detailed way. Yeah. Um, tier three is what you're talking about with the word like vertex or vertices. Um, and tier three words are words that we use in a specific domain or a specific context. Mm -hmm. So back to Penny Dale's book, it would be a word like telehandler or a word like iguanodon. Those words are specific um, to that, those domains of learning mm -hmm. and vertex or vertices would be something specific to um, the teaching of mathematics. So in a long-winded way, I think the first step is for the teacher to understand where does the word fit mm -hmm. in terms of that tier of language, those tiers of language, and how would I be expecting that child to use that word? So if something like uh, a vertex or vertices is going to be something that really interests because often at that age those really big words those technical words that's mm -hmm. why children learn iguanodon ankylosaurus all these dinosaur yeah. names I've, I've yet to meet a three-year-old who can't name me two or three dinosaurs yeah yeah <laughs> but they do like these technical words but sometimes as adults we get a little bit uh concerned that oh well, that might be a bit too difficult mm -hmm. it might be a bit too challenging so i think it's if we want them to know the word vertex or vertices, is there an opportunity beyond learning that word where they can use that in their play? Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about a reception classroom, is there some opportunity where they're playing and they could drop that word into conversation? So I call that recharging. So mm -hmm. we want to charge up the word by teaching them a new word in a variety of ways, but also it's the importance of recharging that word, not just teaching them loads and loads of words, giving them something to do with that word later on. Um, so I think that's that's a really important consideration. In my personal opinion, I think limiting vocabulary in any way is never really a good idea. Yeah. I think if you can challenge children, if you can give them the vocabulary, expose them to that rich language at tier two and tier three, you're not going to do them any harm. Yeah, because I think, do you know what? They don't know any different. If I think about my three-year-old now, if I taught her the word vertices and said, you know, this mm. is a vertex, she'd be like, okay, yeah. <laughs> she'd use it. You know, she's not bothered. She doesn't know that it's more difficult. No, and for some children, they will, that word will come in, in what we call our word hoard. So the amount of words that we hold in our minds, that word will come in. It might stick to something that's already there. So they might know some other uh, mathematical words that are mm. similar and I think oh that's one of those special math mathematics words and they put that in their in their word mm. word into that category now whether or not they then retrieve that word and use that later on is up to whether or not they've recharged it sufficiently over okay. time so it might just be oh right vertex that's quite interesting um that means a point on a on a triangle yeah but they they're not necessarily going to use that later on Mm. So we need to think about what the, the usability is of Trying that word. Trying to make sure they use it again. That if really that's what we want them to do. Because mm. I think we, we kind of touched on this before, because um, my daughter, she, she she automatically tries to use them again. Um, 
I haven't sort of taught her anything. She just, I don't know, I suppose maybe it's how interested she is in the words. She does, I notice that she does use those again herself. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she could have found opportunities to play with them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the thing is, is that in our... So I'm pointing to the back of my head now because the back of our head, that's what we call the visual cortex part Mm -hmm. of the brain. I'm in no way a a neuroscientist, but I do know a little bit, (laughs) a little bit about these things. So the back of our brain is the visual cortex. So you imagine in the back of the brain, you have this visual store of Mm. words. The front part of the brain is where all the auditory information comes in. So when we hear a word, if we hear a word like... um, Oh, like vertex. Okay, so the word comes in. I hear the word and I'm processing either that word as a whole word or I might be processing individual sounds. So the v sound or I might be processing syllables, vertex. Mm. But in some way, I'm auditorily processing that word. It then comes to the visual part of my brain. And even though we don't have the word vertex written down, you can see the word. Yeah, I am seeing, I can see the word. You can see the word. And that's your visual cortex activating. And that's where all of our knowledge of spelling system and how words work. And I guess a child won't have that. No, exactly. So if a child hasn't unlocked the code, so that's why, you know, early teaching of phonics, systematic phonics, if they haven't unlocked the code and they don't know that a V is represented in that word by the letter V and the X is represented by the letter X, they might just have heard the word but they may or may not visually map that word. So the visual mapping of the word helps to solidify that and make it stronger. So can the visual mapping be not the text and be something else? Um, The visual mapping could be individual sounds within the words. It um, It could be the shape of the word. It could be a word that looks like another word, or it could be the spelling of a word. So not a picture that would associate with a word. It could be, yeah. So for very young children... Yeah, because I just think at this age, she she knows some um, sounds, but she doesn't really know any words. Absolutely. So, So visually, she might be mapping that by thinking about the triangle and she might be thinking, right, that point on the top of the triangle, yeah, that yeah. might be how she's visually or mapping. maybe when she said, oh, this lasagna is delicious last night, she must have been picturing my lasagna Absolutely. when she was thinking of the word delicious. <laughs> she was thinking of mummy with a bright sun shining round your face. <laughs> of course, <Yeah>. that. She did, <laughs> she did actually say the other day, which was hilarious, we were having fish and chips, by the way. Um, Edward will hate me for telling you this on the podcast. But um, I even videoed it. So she said, um, I said, oh, what's mummy the best at? She says, mummy's the best at cooking. I said, oh, and what's daddy the best at? Putting food on the plate. Uh. Because he dished up and chips. I was like, yes. Not putting the dishes in the dishwasher then, no. Oh, no, no, no. He's not the best at that. Just putting the food on the plate. He can cook really well, but just doesn't. But back to, I mean, back to the, those those memory stores and those visual stores. So just taking that a bit further. So we've mapped it. It's come in the auditory. It's come in the front. It's in the visual. Mm-hmm. But actually getting that word out again causes another challenge. Mm-hmm. So we have two different types of, of language stores. We have a receptive store. Mm-hmm. So think of something receptive, something that you receive. So when we receive language, we receive it by reading and we receive it by listening to people mm-hmm. talk. We also have an expressive uh, vocabulary store, so how we express our ideas, our information, through writing, through speaking. Mm-hmm. So when that word comes in, we are more likely, if we've visually mapped it quite sufficiently, when we come across the word vertex in the text, I might 
if I've mapped the word, if I see that word, I'm automatically triggering that in my mm -hmm. visual cortex, in my word hoard, and saying, all right, vertex. I might remember something about the word. Mm -hmm. I might just remember that the V has a point at the bottom, and that might be my mental hook mm -hmm. to remember what that word means. But I'm not as likely to be able to remember the word, to remember how to say the word, mm -hmm. vertex, to, to form those words in my mouth, and then to be able to express it in a spoken way and I'm even less likely to be able to remember it and be able to write it and spell it correctly. Mm. That's because our receptive bank, so for reading and listening, the words that we have there is a lot greater number of words mm. than words that we have for expressive. So back to that classroom situation, that goes back to the recharging. So if you're wanting the child to learn the word vertex and use the word vertex when they're playing, when they're talking, or perhaps for older children um, at some point when they're writing, or even for younger children if it's appropriate at that time, it's how much exposure we have to give them to that word. Yeah. And research says it's up to 24 exposures That's for that really word. That's really interesting be... because I kind of think, oh, you know, I've seen, I've seen uh, classrooms where they've got like a word of the day or something, mm. but is word of the day enough? It, actually you know we, we kind yeah. of forget and we think oh yeah word of the day right guys this is the word for today mm. but we forget that they need that exposure over time it's like we need a plan for that absolutely i mean i think there are a lot of really really good vocabulary resources that are available that teachers can go to at the minute from a range of sources um something like word of the day can be positive because what it shows me is that we are having a focus on vocabulary instruction. Mm -hmm. However, word of the day could be made even more effective. So yeah. let's think about word of the day. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to give you some numbers now. So what research tells us is that to be a fully functioning adult, we need to have a vocabulary store of about 50,000 words, 50,000 mm -hmm. to 60,000. So the age of 16, that's to kind of be fully functioning, uh, functioning literate adult, um, mm -hmm. within society. If we peel that back, so back to Isabel Beck's research, Bringing Words to Life, what her and her team found is that to achieve that number, children need to be having between 2,000 to 3,000 words entering this visual word hoard every year up to that age to, to achieve that. Extra now, words. So 2,000 to 3,000 words a year is what they need to be exposed to. So back to your earlier question, if a child comes in age of three and they there is a significant word gap, so they haven't heard a lot of language, they have to we, have, even we have even more. more. Yeah, and we call that the Matthew effect. So the, the Bible verse, Matthew, the rich get richer, the poor get poor. Right, it's, yeah. So it's about that word gap getting wider and wider. Yeah. So I think it's thinking about those numbers. So 50,000 words, 2,000 to 3,000 a year, but without panicking teachers, that doesn't mean that we and then, parents and parents that doesn't mean that we need to teach them 2000 to 3000 words a year but what it does mean is we need to have a language rich environment so we need to be because talking because they need to be picking up those extra yeah. 2000 modeling um modeling interacting high quality text so bringing that down even further beck isabel beck suggests that we should directly instruct so let's say you had chosen a word like meander okay for another word for walk so a tier 2 word meander linking to tier one, a word they already know, then we need to teach 400 of those is what Beck suggests in order for children, 400 of the 2,000 to 3,000 need to be Each directly year. instructed by the teacher in the classroom. Right. 
And if you break that down, that's about 10 per week. Right. Um, now, I wouldn't go about that personally as a word of the day approach. My approach is um, more of a, a contextual approach to instruction. Um, so I'll give you an example. What does that mean, contextual? Um, working with a group of teachers at the minute in Boston. So there's a, there's a reading project that's happening in the early years um, currently. And we were having a conversation the other week about children on the playground not being able to communicate effectively with each other. Mm. So it might be that English isn't their first language yeah. and it might not be the case, but they just weren't communicating effectively. So we talked on the project about how you could teach them words in context that they could use to to make their play more engaging, more mm -hmm. interesting. So we taught that was the context there. Mm -hmm. So the context is, what is it that we're going to be doing after we've taught this word where they can recharge this word after? So it might be yeah. the context is we're reading a really great book and I'm selecting a couple of words from this chapter. Or it might be we're going on a, a trip and I'm going to give them some words that they can use to talk about and describe the experience. Or it mm -hmm. might be linked to something on the playground or a visitor coming in. So the context part um, needs to be really, really strong because that links to the recharging. Yeah. Now you can make a word of the day context specific, but it needs to be, at the end of the day, that's the big thing. If they're not going to use it, then are we getting the best Yeah, you need you to know, plan mileage. in the recharging. Mm -hmm. I guess it's like learning to drive, isn't it, really? You learn to drive and you've always got your instructor there, but they say you really learn to drive after that point by the practice and by having to actually do it. So I guess it's the same thing. You know, once you've learned it, unless you're going to use it, then you're going to forget it. You know, that's right. We won't, it. we won't talk about learning to drive because I had to relearn to drive when I moved here. Oh, okay. not another thing. So I had to learn how to, you know, change gears. All my cars oh, were always yeah. automatic I've on the other side. I've now and I different, love it. Different signs. Um, so yeah. long story short, I failed the test about three times um, before, <laughs> I, before I eventually passed it. Um, but that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. Yeah, but at least yeah. you don't have to renew it. That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> but they might bring that in. You never know. Um, okay. Thank you. Because I'm learning so much. And I love, I love the podcast episodes when I learn. I learn lots. Um, okay. So we've got more questions here. So, in fact, you've already answered this. How do you encourage learners to remember and use the vocabulary? You get them to play. Yeah. I think it's about, it's about the recharging. But it is also about how we charge up that word. Um, so the, the particular phrase that I use, I call it power up. So my approach is word power. And I the, the phrase I use is we want to power up this word. So we think about if I'm introducing um, a new word. So let's look. Um, I brought a couple of books here today. Um, one of my another favorite in our house, Tyrannosaurus Drip by Julia Donaldson. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning of the text it says in a swamp beside a river where the land was thick with veg so if i say that first part in a swamp what are you picturing in your mind if i didn't show you the picture in the book obviously the picture gives pro us pro probably not dinosaurs but a swamp so what it might be wet boggy marshy brown yeah, so you've, you're starting to build. So back, that's back to the schema that we mm -hmm. were talking about. You're building your schema and your knowledge. Now, 
Again, I, I grew up in Florida, not far from the Everglades, so I have a lot of schema with regard to swamps. And, right, yeah. And, you know, don't go near the water's edge because the alligators like to sun themselves. Wow. Um, and you have to be careful of water moccasins if you went swimming in your you friend's pool. See, that's pools. interesting because you're actually thinking... So when you're thinking of a swamp, you're thinking of an actual swamp. But all my kind of thoughts about swamps are like probably on tv mm. or um as part of maybe like i think the one i'm thinking of is animated so it must be from an animated film or something okay um because oh shrek is it shrek no, he lives no, in a think, swamp yeah he does actually <laughs> no i think it's um oh he's there's a one about a princess some some swan princess there's a swamp in that okay the frog the frog uh, the... no it's not a disney one. Oh, okay um, I, I think I've, I've seen I've seen them all. We, we're very much into the Disney films in our house. Saturday afternoon movie time. Yeah, <laughs> all, yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Especially Toy Story. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's really interesting because I would say here there's not a lot of swamps that we would visit. No, and you know that is so important. One of the one of the, another key piece of research that I always talk about is um, Wayne Tennant, and he wrote he writes a lot about reading comprehension, understanding reading mm. comprehension. Um, him and others such as uh, Nikki Gamble from Just Imagine, mm -hmm. they wrote the Guiding Readers book, which is another really interesting one, and they talk a lot about what a reader brings to the text. Mm -hmm. um, so it's about, for me, when I say in a swamp beside a river, I'm bringing my personal experience of mm -hmm. swamp and it's quite a rich experience because I've been there, I've, I've walked through it, I've heard the squelch, 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 I've, yeah. I've smelled what it smells like, I've heard the kind of, uh, the crickets and the katydids, I've heard mm -hmm. the noise that you hear when it's quite a wet, boggy area, whereas you will have an understanding through what you've read, through what you've seen, but perhaps not as much of a richness of experience. Yeah. And that's one of the first principles that I talk about is kind of unlocking what's already there for children. Yeah. So I say we want to unlock their word and world knowledge. So if I was to say, you know, what we did there is we were unlocking world knowledge. What were your personal associations? But we also did a little bit of unlocking word knowledge. So making connections and associations with the word um, marsh, bog, quagmire, muddy, wet, sloppy, stinky. You know, we might yeah. come up with many associated words in our schema of a swamp. So that's the first step. The next thing we would want to do... So what sorry? would you do then? Would you would you start reading this book and then stop it there and say, right, swamp? And, and, and it, depends on, it depends on how you did it. Now, the, the word swamp is what I would call an anchor word in the text. So a swamp is, is where they live. It's something that the children really need to know a lot about. Mm -hmm. So I might talk to them about a swamp beforehand. Right. So in a classroom situation, I would perhaps do a little bit of pre-teaching. I might tell them a story about being in a swamp or walking through the swamp and what I heard, what I saw, what I felt. I might have a really high quality image of a yeah. swamp. I might have some kind of audio mm -hmm. of what it, the, the crickets and the katydids sound like in the, yeah. the, the kind of the chirping, the, the sound that you hear in a swamp. Um, I might collect some words give them a bit of an association mm. as an initial to get them into the text so you could pre-teach some of the words I don't I wouldn't pre-teach all of the words but I might choose something like swamp is quite a significant word yeah. that they need to know um, another strategy that you could do 
is if you come across a word, swamp. So in a swamp, I might hold the book up and then I might point to the children and say, all right, well, we know it's a swamp. You see how the little feet are in the water. It's very wet. There's some, there's some greenery around. There's um, some reeds. There's some ferns. So I might bring them into the image yeah. or I might stop at that point, um, bring myself out of the text as a teacher and do a simple think aloud. So in a swamp, you can do this by, when I was in the classroom, I would kind of have a scarf that I wore when I was reading as a reader. And then I took the scarf off when I was talking to them as a teacher. Right. Okay. So I'd say in a swamp, scarf on, take the scarf off. Swamp, that's a bit of a tricky word. Um, so swamp is a really wet, muddy place, um, lots of lots of water, um, and that's what this story is going to be about. Just as quick as that, and then carry on reading. Yeah. And that's something that we all naturally do as teachers. I do that mm. now as, as a parent, you know, sometimes when you think, yeah, I need to explain this word, or, or sometimes just, um, you know, act like a thesaurus and say lots yeah. of other words on that word. I think it, that is quite a natural thing mm. that we do, isn't it, really? And back to what we were talking about earlier about kind of targeting, I call it the weekly top 10, but, you know, targeting roughly 10 words per week. You might target 10 words from Tyrannosaurus Drip. Yeah. You might pick 10 words from this text. You might pick five words here and five words there. But as a teacher, I probably would have twigged already that that's a word that I'm going to want to introduce. Mm. So, so we've unlocked, we've thought about what associations they've made, what word connections... And then we would want to power up that word in some ways. So with the word swamp, if I'm looking at that, I might look at that word visually, okay? So I call this, um, this strategy orthography, which sounds like a really complicated word. But if you break it down, ortho means correct. So like you go to an orthodontist to get correct teeth, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Um, and graph is writing. So orthography is just visual or spelling. Mm -hmm. So one of the strategies, you might look at the word swamp and you might get the child to write the word swamp and then say, right, can you think of any other words that start with that letter string SW? So swamp, swing, sweat, sweater. And again, remember the visual part of the brain. Mm. I might, as a learner, make a quick visual connection of an orthographic connection, a spelling connection with that word. Or you might look at the end two words, the MP. Okay, so that's another visual. I might think of words like bump or shrimp or any words that end. Lamp. I was like, oh, I've got of one. Absolutely, <laughs> yes, you've got one. So that's, that's one strategy. Mm. Um, another strategy is um, what we call phonology. So do you hear the phone bit? Mm -hmm. The phonology is the sounds, yeah. um, the sounds of the words or the sounds in our language. So I might get them to uh, just simply repeat the word. I might, so, might repeat after me, so just join in with me if you will, so I might say swamp, 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 okay, and I might even, oh, fun. yeah, <laughs> I might <laughs> even segment, and I might say swamp, swamp, and your turn, swamp, swamp, 
okay. So that would be segmenting. If it was a bigger, if it was a longer word, you could segment the syllables. Yeah. Um, so I might think of that. We've already made some personal connections. Mm -hmm. So we might get them to activate, you know, what kind of animals would you find in a swamp? So we might say alligators or snakes or whatever. What would you see if you were in a swamp? What wouldn't you see? if you were in a swamp. So it's trying to activate that. Mm. Um, so that's another one, personal links. We could get them to make, we've done connections already, which mm -hmm. is perhaps synonyms, bog, quagmire. Um, but we might also think of, if it wasn't a swamp, what's the opposite of a swamp? Mm. If I was somewhere, oh, I'm in a swamp and someone else is somewhere completely opposite, what does their place look like? Mm. Is it really dry and really clean and pristine? Um, Sounds like the one I'd want to be in. <laughs> that one, yes, absolutely. Um, I could also think of another big word coming up. So we've had orthography, which was the spelling. We've had phonology, which is the sounds. Mm. We could also look at what's called the morphology. So again, it's not like, like I'm thinking of the Power Rangers here, you know, the Mighty Morph oh, Power yeah, Rangers. Yeah. My kids are well into that at the minute. Um, <laughs> but morph is, is where we can change mm -hmm. something. So, but a morpheme is a smallest unit of meaning in a word. So in the word swamp, that word holds meaning. But what if I said to you, oh, do you know what? I'm so busy this week. I'm absolutely swamped. Yeah. In that word, swamped, First of all, it has a different meaning than it does in this context, yeah. but we have two morphemes in that word. So you have swamp, which in that case acts as a verb, mm. and then you have the suffix ed, which funnily enough, if we only used our ear, it sounds like a t, doesn't it? Yeah. Swamped. Yeah. But if I understand, oh, I was swamped at work, it's something that happened in the past. Yeah. So I'm tuning in all of those different strategies. So that word actually has two two morphemes yeah. um in the curriculum we talk a lot about um word families mm -hmm. so words yeah, that, yeah. words that share the same root so if you think of the word uh scribe or scribe or script which are basically the same you can have a scribe so mm -hmm. one who writes you can have a subscription an inscription a subscription so can you see yeah. if we know the root meaning of those words as a learning new words, boosting mm. our vocabulary. If we can get an understanding of the root, mm. then we can we can develop that even further. And actually we don't... Lots of words together. Yeah, I don't necessarily need to know the specific meaning of subscription, inscription, description. That's where we have all this focus on teaching prefixes and suffixes yeah, yeah. in the curriculum. So we've had spelling, sound, personal connection, synonyms, antonyms. We've had morphology. You could also do something around um, word class. So in a swamp, is in this function, is functioning as a noun. So this is a noun in this sentence. So we could think about other contexts where we could use swamp as a noun, not just in this story, but beyond mm -hmm. that. And then the final one is another really big word, um, etymology. So that's the history of the words in our language. And this is a great strategy, especially into key stage two, mm -hmm. getting children to investigate how words have arrived in our language mm -hmm. and how they've changed over, over time. So the word swamp, um, I believe it comes from Middle English and it means something, something similar like um, mossy or, you know, something not exactly as the swamp yeah. there but it was a word that we've retained 
from a previous version of English, from, yeah. from Middle English. Um, so it's really interesting, all of those strategies. Can you see how we've looked at that word in depth? Yeah. Now, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be doing that now as I'm reading the story. Yeah. I would be giving them just a quick introduction, help, to, help them to, to find the word in the text within, to, to clarify its meaning. But all of that other additional discussion, that powering up, would happen after we've read and that's back to if you imagine in your word hoard can the word get deeper and deeper and deeper into your word hoard because mm. the more it's there the more connections it has the more likely i'm going to use it when i'm reading when i'm writing yeah absolutely just got a couple of questions on that because it's so interesting so obviously you've given a lot of strategies there so thank you so much is, does, do they all count towards your 24 times? Yeah, any, any of those, um, if you get them to kind of articulate the word in different ways or segment. Now, get back to that 24 exposures, that's kind of the Rolls-Royce model, top of the scale. For yeah. some words, if a child already has a really strong association and connection, yeah. we might only need a few exposures. Some children might not need that amount of times, because I was thinking, oh, 24 times is a, long t is a lot of times. But then actually, you've given a lot of strategies, and so it's yeah, kind of easy. That was probably 24 in, in what we just, what we just yeah, talked absolutely. about. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think it, it's thinking about what we have a close connection to. So if you were to take the word um, handkerchief, that might not be a word that the child's very familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, my, my, again, my youngest, he's always pinching granddad's handkerchiefs when he goes to his house because he has a little bit of an obsession. I find them like squirreled away in his room. Um, but he knows that word because granddad uses that word a lot and he actually uses the word handkerchief. But it's not a word that we use quite regularly. It's something very specific to a specific item. So for that word to come in, again, I might recognize it if, it, if that word popped up in a story if I've had that exposure, but me remembering how to articulate, how to say the word, which yeah. is why the, the speaking and the Especially repetition. Especially when you're not at a stage where you can spell it. Absolutely. Yeah. So the speaking and the repetition is really key, you yeah. know, getting them to come up with that word. So just going back to, you know, this whole talk, whole talk about the word swamp, um, you, you said like you would look through this book and, um, you know, this is one idea to find words. Does that mean, and you want it to be in context, so you wouldn't plan out, because I feel like a lot of teachers would think, right, okay, I want to plan out mm. my 10 words a week mm -hmm. for the entire year. Mm -hmm. Would you kind of avoid doing that yeah. and do what is, yeah. you know, and just trust that if, if we're all doing this, mm -hmm. um, then we're going to have a better effect? Yeah. I mean, there are some programs, some really really highly effective programs that map words out for you um, and they say you know these are kind of good words to teach for certain ages but as I say with this with this program it's more week to week what we're we doing what the, the key question for teachers is is which words do I really want to focus on explicitly so we would call this the explicit vocabulary instruction which words do I want to focus on explicitly because I know they're going to be doing something. They're going to be recharging these words in some way. And yeah. it's really hard to do that, to map those words out across a year. So it would be thinking, you know, this week, oh, actually, my weekly top 10, it wasn't quite right. They were too hard or they were too easy. or So yeah. it helps you to they adjust. Were they were unrelated as well. Yeah. I guess, really, this is, 
you know, making it fit um, our curriculum at the moment because it really is helping you to deepen those, whereas mm. it would be a lot harder if it wasn't in context to deepen them properly, mm. wouldn't it? That's right. And it might be that some weeks you have a few tier three words in there. So we know um, sometimes you might select some specific tier three words if you're teaching something in geography or history um, or science. And you might pick a few tier three words, so specific mm -hmm. words like, um, oh, I don't know, uh, something like evaporation. Mm -hmm. But what you might do is you might then pick a few tier two words mm -hmm. that can help them to describe that process of evap right. evaporation. They aren't subject specific words, mm -hmm. so we, we might pick some specific tier two words to help them to describe that more complex tier three concept. Mm -hmm. So in context, it can be a range of contexts. It can be in context in a literacy lesson. It can be in context for a trip, a visit, um, something that you're having difficulty with mm -hmm. in terms of children communicating at school um, or across the curriculum. So it's a real versatile approach, but the key is, is that the teacher's actively thinking yeah. that week, what are the words that I'm really focusing on and how are we going to charge them up yeah. you know and how are we going to recharge them i feel like i need to uh, listen to this podcast again when it goes live so i can do all the homework <laughs> and like right children my children at home i need to this test you on all those ologies now phonology etymology those are a bit hard to get your head around yeah, but, I'll need uh... to listen to that one. it'll be in the show notes i'll read yeah. it <laughs> um okay so tell me about your book then okay so um really excited yeah. i've always always wanted to write a book ever since I was little mm -hmm. I had this idea that I wanted to write a book I don't know what I wanted to write it about I think at some point I wanted to write a poetry book and some point I wanted to write some kind of mystery um, and I've landed on a, a text for teachers about how mm -hmm. to teach vocabulary so this book is um, it's called word power amplifying vocabulary instruction yeah if and you, if you're on YouTube you can see it now yeah so it's just come out um, September 2019 and it's all about how as teachers we could use this as a professional development tool in schools to open up conversations with teachers about how we deepen children's knowledge of words. Mm -hmm. So for example in the book um, each of those strategies that I talked you through with Swamp, yeah. there's a chapter in here about each of those. Mm -hmm. So it talks through... Um, so it's in a lot more detail as well. Yes, yeah. it talks through. And as well, which makes it a little bit more fun and jazzy, each of the strategies have come up with a, a superhero character. Okay, yeah. So, for example, when we were talking about the phonology, the swamp, 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 yeah. that would be uh, the phoneme phantom. Mm -hmm. um, and each of the superheroes has specific features in how they've been created to remind children of the different things they can do within that strategy mm -hmm. to help them to power up words. Um, and really that's, that's, the, that's the crux of the text. Each chapter, I've tried to think um, really influenced by I love his name, Oliver Caviglioli, um, dual oh, coding, wow. Ollie Cav. I don't know if you're familiar with him. No, but, but I just definitely don't want to let yeah. say his name. <laughs> Oliver Caviglioli. He just came off, he just rolled off your tongue. I was like, what now? But he, on, on Twitter, he's Ollie Cav. And he, he talks a lot about um, when you read a book, you often, if it's, a, if it's a technical text or a professional text, you'll read a chapter. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, there's kind of these reflection questions. But going on, on Ollie Cav's approach, what I've done is in each chapter, 
I've set out kind of a summary at the start of that chapter. So even busy teachers, even yeah. if you can't go into detail, I'm going to read all this this information about this strategy. You can look through kind of the the basic information at the front and say, oh, is this something that I want to learn a bit more about? So it helps you to navigate yeah. Yeah. the text. It's especially as, as a book where, I mean, you get books, don't you, like a novel where you've got to read it from beginning to end. Mm. But this is more like a, a reference book, Absolutely. isn't it? Where you keep it, you don't you don't take it to the charity shop afterwards, you keep it because you need it again. And mm. so that's helpful. Like, was it in this chapter? Oh, yes, it is. Absolutely. And I'm I'm mad about mad about books. So throughout the text, it talks, as I say, it's a contextual approach to instruction. So I reference lots of different texts that teachers will find familiar and how we would power up um, using that particular text. Mm. It doesn't give lists of words and it doesn't tell you the words to teach. It's a it's a strategy for teachers to to reflect on their own practice yeah. and hopefully I hope it will help people to open up conversations about what they think about the teaching of vocabulary. And do we really teach words in depth? Do we really pick those words that we want to teach? And do we have a good range of strategies? Because there are a lot of strategies in here that teachers will say, oh yeah, I, I do that. But it's how they're connected yes. and how they're building up within words to help them to recharge those words for a purpose in reading or in writing. And also, even then when you're saying, you know, teachers will say, oh, I do that. Well, I said that as well, but obviously not the range. And I think, you know, the conversation could probably go, oh, I um, how do I even start teaching vocabulary? So, yes, when you're saying those things, they might, might recognise some of the things that they're doing. Mm. But really, as teachers, are we a bit scared? by that and like um how, how do I even teach vocabulary and think that there must be some mysterious kind of way yeah and, you, and you've you kind of packaged it all up nicely yeah I hope that I hope teachers will will come to this and it'll make them feel more confident about what they are doing but it also might challenge them a bit to think about why they're doing what they're doing yeah. and how they can amplify you know that's kind of yeah. in the title how they can amplify that instruction yeah. even more how they can power it all yeah absolute power up yeah get yeah. you to use the lingo yeah. um so it's not um you can get it on my on my website mm -hmm. um is where you can order them at the minute so there's a facility to and order we'll put a link for that in the show notes yeah and i'm really excited i'm going to do a giveaway for your podcast oh, so nice. i'm Thank giving um, a copy to the podcast so i'm sure you can find out ways to enter into the giveaway yeah so we'll do we'll run a, a giveaway on the facebook page um and um details to follow it'll probably be something like a week or something from release date maybe even give them back to the american link you know as part of the giveaway give us your favorite american british um kind of words that that link so for example um what like nappy and diaper nappy and diaper or trolley and cart or tin and can or you know anything or your favorite americanism you can put an american slant on it if you yeah, want yeah yeah but i do like that idea um, the yeah the words that are, that are different because just just this morning oh the children are watching chip and potato and um <laughs> on netflix it's the worst show ever <laughs> i've never seen that one. Oh well you're lucky that's because <laughs> you're talking you're a bit older um but anyway this chip's got this new baby sister and um hattie's watching it like with such Concentration. I'm thinking, mm, yeah, this is interesting because you're probably thinking, yeah, this is what it like was like when my sister arrived, and then I heard the word diaper, and I'm thinking, 
I wonder if she sort of just accepted that word. It's funny how I was just thinking about this morning and knows that it means nappies because she's watching it. Yeah, because, because she's, she's had never, the context. Yeah, yeah, she's never come to me and said, what's a diaper? Or we've never had the conversation. Mm. So I'll probably try and find that out when I get home. Does yeah. she know what a diaper actually is? Probably, and, because... Yeah. And I think we, we sometimes can make assumptions on what we think they know and what they don't know. Yeah. But actually, sometimes the context of that will, will bring it out. My, my I've talked a lot about my youngest and his cricket and football interest. And, but my, my eldest is absolutely obsessed because um, both my children are dual citizens, as I mm -hmm. am. So yeah. both British and, and American. And um, my eldest son is is really into anything that's an Americanism at mm -hmm. the minute. So he loves, um, so yours will get into this later, Henry Danger and the Thundermans, which are yeah, Nickelodeon, they're super, superhero oh, kind of type shows. Um, and obviously they're American shows. And he picks it up and, he, and his accent is brilliant. He can pass proper American accent, not like a, a British well, person, but a, but a British person trying to sound American. But, but sometimes he'll come out with things like, um, Mum, can I have some water? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. It's like even I don't say it like that, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, but very bizarrely, he'll then say bath. Um, I, right, I blame yeah. Peppa Pig. Yeah. Because I don't say it, and no. my husband doesn't say it, and his friends in North Yorkshire don't yeah. say it that way. Somebody told me the other day that Peppa Pig's really big in America, is it? Oh, yeah, it's massive. Oh. Yeah, massive everywhere you go. Everywhere you go. She'll be really pleased <laughs> if she signed up for that because I, I, I saw the other day that she's um, done a lot, she's doing a last. Um, a last episode and then oh. there's the new Peppa Pig. Oh yeah. dear. Yeah, we but, moved on from that to Ben and Holly and now oh, we're on yeah, to ben and Holly. superheroes. <laughs> I'm not looking forward to that one because, you know, Peppa Pig, actually, at least there's a bit of humour in it for adults. I don't mind it. Ben and Holly's Patrol. even better. Oh no, Paw Patrol, no. Yeah. Not anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. We digress. <laughs> we're just advertising all these shows. Um, okay. So, if you could wave a magic wand, how would you solve the life-work balance problem for teachers? Yeah. I mean, I think with the life-work balance, it's really difficult. I think in particular around curriculum development at the minute. So in schools, we've had a real invigorated, you know, look um, at the curriculum, especially with kind of standards and expectations of, of what we need. If I could wave a magic wand, I would give us more time to, for schools and teachers to develop a curriculum that's right for the context, that's right for the school, but not just really quickly developing that curriculum, having time to test it out, to embed yeah. it, to get ideas and information. So it's almost like uh, there's a really good advert that I sometimes use on my training. It's an EDF energy. I don't even know what EDF energy is, but it's the advert is called Building Planes in the Sky. Mm. And, and it's a really great metaphor. I often feel like that. So in, in this advert, you have these people literally building the plane as yeah. it's flying. Yeah. And I feel as teachers, a lot of times we're expected to do yeah. that. You know, we're expected to kind of craft this amazingly wonderful and connected mm. curriculum, but we're doing it and then we're delivering it and then we're developing something else in the curriculum and we're delivering it. And yeah. you know, what we know about good implementation is that you need that time to embed, that time to think things through, that time yeah. to align, yeah. you know, that, that alignment. That time to be in the same year group. Absolutely. Um, year after year. You're absolutely right. And I, we talk about this a lot on the podcast. It's just, 
you've expected that it's got to be, you know, 100%. Mm. And you haven't even had time to work out if it's going to work or not. You have to test things out. Yeah. So that I'll just give more time, just more time in being able to do it right. Because I think it's a really exciting time to be able to craft a curriculum that's mm. really bespoke and means a lot for your school community, for your learners, for your families. Mm. But being able to have the time to do that right. Yeah. Okay. Where do you think education is going to go in the next 10 years? Oh, in the next 10 years? Well, I would like to think that we'll continue to have like this real focus and drive on, on vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Vocabulary seems to have always been like the real poor relation in the curriculum. Yeah, yeah. You know, back to the differences in the American and the US system, vocabulary was always really front and center, um, perhaps because we had people like um, Fountas and Pinnell who were writing mm. these materials and that was really central to their approach as well. Um, but I think we're starting to understand, you know, in order to deepen our knowledge of subjects, in order to, to strengthen our, our skills and capabilities as readers, we need to have a broad and rich vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Mm -hmm. It's not just about, let's shove a whole loads of words in, because yeah. we know that they'll just as quickly fly out again. Yeah, it's about building those strong connections and associations. So in the next 10 years, I hope to see that this improve focus on vocabulary both within English itself, English as a medium for strengthening knowledge and deepening understanding in other subjects, um, but for teachers to really understand how words work mm -hmm. and how they're connected and how we can use a range of strategies to really help children to develop the word knowledge that they need to access a range of subjects. Yeah, thank you. I feel like yeah, there are so many things like that, um, you know, in technology, um, in vocabulary, in mathematics, and, and it's how we do it all mm. and get it to, to a good point. But also, you know, being as active members of our society, we have, I, I do find it fascinating, so the dictionary, Oxford English Dictionary, they do, I believe, four updates a year, and every year there's about 1,200 new words coming into the dictionary. Now, sometimes wow. it might be a brand new word, we call that a neologism, so can you hear the neo in there? Mm -hmm. So that's the, the new part, the new, yeah. so a new word, um, so a word like Googled, that was right, a yeah, word yeah. that never existed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we say that even when we use Bing. Absolutely, absolutely. So these new words, but also in one of the recent updates, a word, uh, the word ace was added. So we've had ace previously, um, as in ace in a deck of cards, or we might have even said in America to ace a test because we had a system of A, B, C, D. Yeah. Um, but now or it's, ace, we'd be like, that's ace. Is ace. Like, oh, that's ace. And that's the new meaning that's come into the dictionary. So it might- Just now? Just I recently. I that as a kid. Absolutely, but it's, it's about how it travels into the dictionary. Um, how that word makes that journey. Um, back to my book, you know, book obsession. There's a great book called Frindle. Um, and it's written by Andrew Clemens and it talks just about that. It's about a little boy who renames the pen a frindle. Right. And it's about the journey of when he's in school to then when he becomes an adult and how that word grows and develops and grows in popularity and how long it actually takes that word to get into the dictionary. It's interesting that we're talking about this because I'm one of those people who thinks about random things. And I think just yesterday I was thinking of things, you know, um, so say if you have a saying and then you'll notice that that saying's also in America and you think, how did it even get there? You know, how does it 
travel because surely just one person starts that off or is it that a few people had the same thought for that one particular saying yeah how how well what the the, the technical term for it is something called um like a semantic shift if you want to get really technical so semantics um so you hear the the, the man bit the, that's the meaning bit mm -hmm. of the word semantics so a semantic shift is how words have changed in meaning over time mm -hmm. so if you take a word awful okay you might be thinking let's go back to that bit we were talking about morphology there we've got the word aw and we've got full so if we used our morphology to work out the meaning of the word awful it should mean full of awe yeah and it did it did ah. it used to mean full of awe but over time that word's been used um, often we have kind of concrete meanings of words that shift into more metaphorical meanings and you can mm. still see a, a connection um, sometimes linguists can talk about it in terms of like a color palette so if you're mixing um, yellow and red Mm. sometimes it might look a bit more you know lighter orange and sometimes yeah. it might look a bit more vibrant orange it's the same thing if you think of a shift yeah. of a word and how, so a word like awful has completely shifted yeah. in its meaning it would have taken time yeah. and variations absolutely and it's all cultural and social influences um you know how words change over time and also uses back to our world knowledge you know how we would use that word in our world so when we had people from england coming to the us back mm. you know hundreds of years ago to settle they had to come up with new words to describe their surroundings so there were a lot of neologisms yeah, back yeah, then yeah, yeah. um describing the different animals and the plants and so on those words have then become embedded but as we've started to travel more and more around the word we've borrowed you know the english language like magpies we borrow words so words like canoe barbecue banjo yeah. um french words like cafe yeah. and chateau there's like uh, i think there's roughly ten thousand words in the english language mm. that are from french yeah because of yeah. the norman invasion that's yeah, all yeah. from middle english what we were talking about before so it, it language is so interesting i never in my life my my least favorite subject sorry history teachers was history. Um, I never had any history teachers that really kind of ignited that spark or interest. It's only in the last 10 years when I've been reading about the history of language mm. that I've in a roundabout way started to learn about the history and, and how things work. And it is about influences over time. Mm. So yeah, etymology is absolutely fascinating. It's one of, one of my favorite parts of, of language. Um, there's a great website that you can go on, free website uh, for Key Stage 2 teachers. If you're wanting to learn a bit more about etymology, you can get etymology dictionaries in mm -hmm. school, but the etymology online dictionary is a great resource. Just don't use it live in the classroom because sometimes it can throw back some quite questionable results that you wouldn't want to discuss uh, right. with children. So use it for your own information, but not necessarily as a live so, tool a live in the tool. classroom. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for that tip. Um, right, okay, last two questions then. Who was your favourite teacher at school and why? Oh, do you know, it's a funny one because I had so many teachers that I really, really liked, but none of them were from primary. Isn't that bizarre? 
So I think probably one of the teachers I liked was secondary. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about who, you know, who your favourite teacher was, it was someone who showed an interest in you, someone who challenged you, someone who was funny. So like in middle school, so we called it middle school at that time. So that's kind of years, uh, key stage three, middle mm -hmm. school. Um, I had a, a science teacher called Mr. Zabel. And again, I wasn't particularly interested in science, but he was so funny. I remember he just made science so real and so interesting. Um, in high school, I took a creative writing course um, and I had a couple of English teachers, Mrs. Bamdis and Mrs. Zacker. So Miss Bamdis taught me all about, she was a bit like, you know, kind of loose and kind of very earthy kind of yeah, person yeah. and very kind of like flowy and very creative. We call it, we call it hippie. Hippie, yes, yeah. I didn't want to use that word, but yes, she was very hippified, <laughs> we won't use that word. But she taught me all about poetry and creative writing and self-expression, which is great when you're 15, um, when you've got all sorts of stuff going on in your head. Um, and then Mrs. Zacker was very different. She was very, um, she was a very different type of person, but she taught us all about words and how words work. Um, but I would say probably if I had to pick one, since I've given you loads there, I would pick from my teacher training at UCF. So it was a lady called Terry Torbert and I'll never forget her. She she taught my module on, it was a children's literature mod module and it was all about how we could um, develop literacy in the classroom. And she helped me to love children's literature and it was her passion i still remember our first day with her she showed us this slideshow of her first grade class and she was in tears talking about these children and how much they had come on and how much she was going to miss them so she was only seconded for a year to mm -hmm. the university but i remember seeing her and thinking do you know what i want to be like you i yeah. want to be that kind of teacher and i think that's probably what sparked my interest in my specialism in the teaching mm. wow Okay, thank you. And finally, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, what did I want? Well, I wanted to write a book, but that's not kind of a what you want to be. Um, it was a funny one. So back, to, I I started off, as I mentioned before, I was a dance teacher. Oh, and, yes, and so it was I. Like. Really, really random. So I was very much into uh, French. So mm -hmm. I took French to quite a high level all the way through secondary school and, and into university as well. And I had come up with this plan when I was around about, you know, well, early age of eight, I just wanted to be a dance teacher. And then as I grew, I wanted to be a dance teacher and then I wanted to be a dance teacher in France. <laughs> and then I wanted to have my own studio. But it's really funny how life comes full circle because I never, I, I, I came to France once in high school on like this program where you learn, develop yeah. your language. But every year now, my, um, my husband and the boys, we go to France on holiday. Oh, right, yeah. And it's so funny because it makes me think like, huh? I said I always wanted to be in France when yeah. I was older. And we've been doing that for the last eight years. And so. when you were there, that was such a sort of a, a long way to go. Whereas now, yeah, yeah a couple of hours. Just there. a drive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So yeah, a bit random, but that was, that was probably it. Just something um, dancing and French. And it kind <laughs> Very of, much it a kind Frank file. The yeah. teaching bit happened, the France bit kind of happened. Kind of, yeah, yeah, kind of. Cool. Well, thank you so much. You have given us, you've given me personally so much to think about. Um, so I know it's just going to be a great episode. Um, so thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening. There are so many things I'm going to be trying out with my children based on Kelly's advice. Some of it I naturally do anyway, as I'm sure you do, but it's nice to have that validated and know other ways to help children develop a more varied vocabulary. You'll find everything that Kelly talked about in the show notes. If this is the first time that you're listening to the Teacher's Podcast, then check out our other episodes for some more great listens. We've been securing some more fantastic guests for you, and if you want to request that someone is on the podcast, then you can let us know in our Facebook group called The Teacher's Podcast Community. This episode is live on YouTube, so don't forget to subscribe to the channel. And if you love this episode, then please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. See you next week. Thank you for listening. The Teacher's Podcast is in association with Classroom Secrets, a provider of high quality and affordable teaching resources that children love and teachers trust. To find out more, visit classroomsecrets.co.uk.